Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Chris Sweeney. This is Homo Sapiens. I'm eating a curry. If you're wondering why, you can find out all about it in part one if you haven't heard it. Lovely chat with Douglas Stewart as well, thrown in there as a bonus. Love that man. Have a listen to part one if you haven't. Uh, if you have, I'll carry on eating my delicious curry and you're going to listen to Douglas part two. Do you remember your first kiss? I was trying to remember mine and I was thinking how it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, not, not traumatic, traumatic, but yeah, <laughs> it wasn't Yeah, great. mine was terrible too. With a, You mean with someone of the same sex because I'm gay? Yes. Mine, yeah. mine was with a much older man. And so it was... Same. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that can, you know, that's has its place, but it just wasn't the, the romantic vision I had. No. I remember mine was like, I was in a club called The Triangle in Bournemouth because that's where I was at uni. And I was, I think I'd been there like three times. I was out and I'd been there like three times with my friends and was like, um, you know, I really want to pull. And then I was like, right, it's going to happen tonight. And there was this guy that I always fancied much older people than me, which I was really ashamed of. And so I don't know why I did, but anyway. And there was this guy there on the dance floor who he was probably 40. Yeah. He was probably 36, uh-huh. actually. But I was 19, 20, 21. Um, and he was smoking i remember this and i went over to him i just walked up to him we didn't say a single word and i started kissing him and i don't really know how that happened i love that but of all i remember is like i was sort of i just remember feeling very much like it was i could have been anyone to him if that makes Uh any sense and then i kissed him and then we finished kissing and while we're kissing i'm like how does this end i don't know because I kissed a lot of girls, like, but it would, I sort of always knew I wasn't meant to be feeling it, if that makes any sense. So I wasn't quite so in it. And then after I finished kissing him, he gave me a B&H, one of his Benson Hedges gold <laughs> And we just stood on the dance floor smoking it. It was so weird. And I was like, I imagined, I don't know. It's just, it was just, I never, I never spoke it's to It's just him. not how you imagine it. I, uh, my first kiss was yeah. with a guy who was, I think he was a chef. And he was about 27 and I was 17. And we had met on the dance floor and we'd spent the, you know, we'd been chatting each other up all night. And I, and I was very attracted to him. And he took me out onto the dance floor and he gave me a big kiss. And then it suddenly transpired that he was only kissing me to make his ex-boyfriend jealous. 
And so as soon as he got his ex-boyfriend's <laughs> attention, he literally, I got the hook and I was like shoved off stage. And and my like entire <laughs> night, my entire world revolved so quickly. I, I just was so stunned and so shocked. And he ended up going home with his ex-boyfriend. He got him back. And so I was, oh my I was God. an unwitting part of a, of a love triangle. And that was my first kiss. How disappointing. What a um, microcosm of a baptism of fire, what it is to be gay for both of us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Zero conversation or being used. For yeah, exactly. Else. Exactly. <laughs> and replaceable in a minute. Welcome. Yeah. yeah welcome to the club, boys. <laughs> but you've said such lovely things about your husband and what a kind and caring person he is. And I, I was sort of having that thought bubbling in my head. And then I, you were talking about filial relationships and, you know, Shuggy and Agnes's relationship and then wanting to tell a love story with young Mungo. And it's quite interesting that, isn't it? Because in some ways, Shuggy is, I don't ever want to put words in your mouth, it's your book. But if it was a relationship, it would be incredibly toxic. Do you do you feel any kind of difference between those relationships? Because Shuggy's trapped in something that he really wants to make right. But you know, you would tell someone to leave if it was their boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, you would today. I mean, the relationship that Shuggy's in with his mother, I mean, I think today we have so many more tools, but, but so much of it is drawn from my own experience, loving my own mother through her addiction. You know, hmm. my mother was, you know, I was the last of three children. My mother had me when she was almost 40. And by the time I come into her life, she's already drinking heavily. And, and she eventually dies of it when I'm 16. And you know, I think loving someone through addiction is is a real test. You you get to see all of a person and you get to see it very unvarnished. So we tend to, you know, lionize or, or mythologize our mothers, especially as gay men. They're these wonderful women. And my mother was, but my mother was also very hurt. You know, she was she was beautiful and glamorous and gorgeous and gregarious and so generous and so ready to have a party and be loved. But she was also very hurt and very dark and and she caused a lot of harm in her life because, uh, you know, because she was in a bad place. And and I think, you know, when you're a kid like that, it's the only context you have. I didn't it wasn't like I had any perspective on myself. You know, I didn't really get that till I was in my 30s. New York gave me a lot of perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you're just like, this is my mother. Mm -hmm. This is the person I love most in the world. And so Shuggy does that in the book. I, I wanted him to be this. Because Agnes's other children reject her in their own ways, or they realize they can't save her. And so they move on. But Shuggy doesn't realize that. He just thinks, and that's one of the problems with addiction as well, is you, you can internalize it in a way where you think somebody else's addiction is something you can control. And if you're uh, a better son, if you're quieter, smarter, better at school, you know, if you just foresee the thing your parent might need, maybe today they won't drink. And of course, it's not your struggle. Mm -hmm. And that's been a big part of my journey as an adult is coming to terms with that. But as a kid, it, I, you know, I thought I had the power to like rearrange this. And of course, you don't. Mm. Of course, you don't. But but, you know, so much of my work is about caring for people, but caring for people when they're at their worst, because I think actually, I'm not sure. I think that's a very honest, sincere form of love. You know, it's easy to love someone when that person is doing everything you want and they're being the person you want them to be. But when a person is hurt or when they're damaged or when they're when they're hurting you, if you can still love them, um, hoping that all that will pass, then then there's a power there. Mm. I don't know if that's something I'm very good at. <laughs> so yeah, and you don't have to be. And I also wouldn't tell anybody to stay in a relationship where they're when they're being hurt in the ways that Shuggy is being hurt. But 
But for mm. me and for Shuggy, he has no other context. This is just life. And the thing that is hard to explain to people, I think, you know, maybe if had had it been a, a different narrative, maybe a middle class narrative, then they that would have been the only family on the street that were having a tough time and everyone else would have been cracking on with their lives. But the truth is, is I knew addiction mm. in lots of homes around me. And so I had friends who were going through the same thing. You know, there was other mothers or other fathers. And so I never quite felt lonely in it. I felt almost it was part of the times. Interesting, because I remember you saying that, but you felt that your mum was lonely, Mm -hmm. even though you thought that was why she drank. Would that be right? That's totally right. And uh, society, when women drink, I think, when mothers fail, when they become fallible, they can't cope. You know, almost everything in the novel and in Glasgow at the time was failing. Margaret Thatcher failed, industry failed, my own father failed, Shuggy's father failed. Everything could fail, but when a mother fails, then you're really, really in trouble. And so my mum was incredibly lonely, but at the same time, she had this really strange community because not only was there the people who were also going to AA with her who made this network, but there was also just other mums who were drinking or other women. And, you know, sometimes you could leave for school in the morning and everything would be very calm, very normal, and you could come back for your lunch and it'd be a party. It'd be like New Year's Eve Mm. and it would just be women drinking far too much in the middle of the day. And sometimes it would turn out okay and sometimes it would get really dark. Um, but you just never knew. So there was also a community as well as the loneliness. There was both. Wow. Yeah, I remember you saying uh, one of the most poignant things where you said as a kid with someone who's, uh, with a parent who's an alcoholic in the house and you have taken it upon yourself to try and control the situation, the things that you do, like you always make sure that you answer the front door and you answer as quietly as you can because whoever's behind that door will want to incite drinking in your mum. So you say, sorry, she's not here as quietly as possible. And did uh, what were the other mechanisms that you built up? Because it was so vivid, I thought. There, I mean, there's so many. You learn so many coping mm. strategies. You learn how to unplug a telephone if, you're, if your mother is finally having a sleep or, you know, or mm. sleeping off a drink so she doesn't get woken up. You know how to plug it in the morning. You know how to turn up and down a fire and just all of these things to steer this adult. This adult who should really be steering you as a child, you know, who making sure your needs mm. are met. But instead, you're just balancing their emotions. But but one of the most terrifying things about alcoholism, and for anyone who's ever loved someone with that, is just how unpredictable it is. Because one of the, the big lies, I think, in media and in literature is when someone drinks, they become the same kind of drunk repeatedly. And that's just not true. It, it could be a hundred different people, sometimes very sad, very maudlin, sometimes really angry, sometimes um, self-harming, sometimes the life of the party. And as a kid, mm. not knowing which version of an extreme personality you're going to encounter when you come home from school is terrifying. Yeah, you're, it's it's really vivid that and it's reminded me of um what's that book that film is it left luggage where the the man is in the concentration camp and he's pretending to his kid it's a game oh i haven't seen that i don't know it just it's popped into my mind then it's like he's pretending to his kid that this concentration camp is a game so that therefore the kid won't realize the horror of what's going on but it's tiny little puppeteering in order to create to get an an out an outside goal and i i sort of process that kind of thing but through a child and i think you know what and you actually mentioned it slightly earlier like what with from that have you carried through to adulthood and are there things that you have to watch in yourself little flags of like no 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 not not going down that route in my head 
Yeah, I think sometimes I can have a little bit of too much of a people pleaser thing and I put their needs before my own. And that comes again from from how I was raised. And, and I have issues with self-worth as an adult and as a gay man that comes for both from the bullying and then also from the addiction. Like feeling that I am mm-hmm. worth that love or that I'm worth a better standard than, than maybe I received when I was when I was younger. But, you know, so so much of, I don't know, I mean, if you felt this, but one of the things that I wanted to show in Chuggy is like my queerness wasn't my biggest battle in a way. My, Mm -hmm. my bigger, I had, I was fighting fights on different fronts as a kid and, and Chuggy does too. He's, he's a very compartmentalized kid. You know, he's out on the streets. He's fighting this sort of thing about his gender and how to be a little boy. But at home, he has this Mm. war raging with his mother and he's fighting for his mother's safety and her soul. And he's trying to, to, you know, to get her to continue on. And and some kids are just dealing with more than one thing. And then on top of that, there was... I was internalizing so much about um, poverty and because we we were, when I was born, a very sort of proud working class family. And then through the changes that happened in the city and within my parents' marriage, you know, I became a kid that was really in the underclass. You know, we we really Mm -hmm. existed solely on government benefits. But my mother still carried herself like, she, you know, like we were going places yeah. and and she we were we were. She really believed in her children. And but I could always see that the pride was masking quite a quite a sharp shame. And so when you talk about that father and his son making up this other narrative, that was my whole childhood. I was making narratives to cope with all kinds of things. Um, and that's what leads you to be a writer, I think. Interesting. One of the things I want to ask you is, whose writing do you love? And because I know that one of the things you've said is that, you know, you didn't read much as a kid. And, and actually, weirdly, I read loads as a kid and then have sort of, it's died off. And uh, I'm reminded of another thing, which is that a lot of people say you can't read if you, unless you've kind of got headspace. And I imagine as a kid, you didn't have that, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Are there people you love who you read? Oh, there's so many people I love. I mean, I, I'm still discovering uh, the people that mean the most to me. But I think of the British writers that I turn to time and time again is I love Alan Hollinghurst. I love his mm. queer stories of the upper class and everything that he writes. And, and you know, I'm an enormous uh Alexander Trockey and Agnes Owens, just to give a shout out for my Scottish writers and Alan yeah. Warner. Uh, Alan Warner's Morven Caller is one of my favourite books of all time. And then when I started writing myself, I wanted so badly to be somewhere between uh, Cormac McCarthy and Toni Morrison. They meant a huge amount to me. You wow. know, they, they have quite yeah. cinematic visions, but they're also writers that can deal with intimacy and, and with violence. And, and, and I like those different scales, those different perspectives. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so cinematic the way that you write. It's you're adapting Shuggy for television or is someone else adapting it? Yeah, I'm currently working on adapting it. I hope it I hope it will make it to screens. You just never know. But but when they asked me if I would do that, I, I really had to pause because I, I had to think, oh, after ten, twelve years with Shuggy and Agnes, could could I take much more? You know, I'd really mm-hmm. given them a lot of my life. But but the truth is, is telly was everything we had as a kid. We didn't have books. And so it was how we learned our stories. It was how we learned about creativity and connectivity. And and I figured that there's people that will never read Shuggy Bay. And there's people in my family that will never read it. But mm. if they saw the story on telly, they would get something out of it. They would connect. And so I felt a little bit of a responsibility to the characters and also to to the the kid I was or whatever you want to say, you know, to to make sure that I could bring this to the screen. I love that. And I, I remember you saying it feels linked that 
when you studied fashion and then you went to fashion college and you walked out of fashion college with a job at Calvin Klein, right? I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, they say lightning doesn't strike twice, but Calvin Klein and the Booker, come on. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the things that you said that resonated with me a lot was you said that um, I've never fully squared for telling people what they've said on a podcast, um, but because uh, <laughs> you're like, I know I said it, but that kind of exclusive world of fashion felt very alien to you as someone from a working class background and you wanted to kind of make things for the people. That's right. And and I I love that. And I do I love working in television because I find that it is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I and I sometimes find the other worlds well, I, I did I used to do a lot of fashion films, for example. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was for like twelve people with loads of money. Yeah. Yeah, I think I felt exactly the same thing. I thought when, you know, when I was at college, I loved studying fashion because I loved the story behind it and I wanted so badly at the time, you know, at the in the mid nineties, I wanted to be Helmut Lang or Alexander McQueen or Hussein Shalayan mm. because they were masters of drama and they were masters of storytelling as well as, yeah, oh, I mean, amazing, extraordinary. It's almost like a play, you know. It's it could almost be on the stage, yeah. but then I wind up in luxury fashion houses in New York and I'm working with people called Buffy and they, and I'm just like, and they truly, you know, are millionaires and billionaires, and I just was like, I don't even mm. know what I'm doing here. And it was just such a different world. And I thought all my dreams had been answered when I ended up in New York. And certainly for everybody from my class, my graduating class, they were like, God, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. And I was in these rooms and I was thinking, what am I doing here? Like, what honestly, what am I doing here? And it was just because I couldn't relate to the idea of sometimes we'd have conversations and it would be, can you make that more expensive? We We want to make that more exclusive so less people can reach it. And you would just think to yourself, wow. why would that be a motivation for anything, right? To, but that's luxury. Mm. That's that's what an expensive handbag is. That's what these things are. You you are trying to make people aspire to it, and also by keeping it just slightly out of reach. And mm. I was a kid that grew up, and I saw how hard my mother worked for everything we had, and then how she was exploited by the industry of poverty by having to pay over you know over the price for it when she had to pay everything off because it was either rented or from a catalog you know a shirt was never just 12 pounds you know for my mum it was always like 26 pounds by the time she'd end up paying it off and it's a way that the economy exploits poor people and keeps them in poverty 
And then Hira was in these rooms and they were like, that fabric's not expensive enough. And I just thought, I am in the wrong conversation. I'm in the wrong place. Yes. And I I think that my version of that was like, if you felt the sharp end of being excluded from being a queer kid, and there's many versions of being excluded, mine happened to be that. Why would I be be complicit with something that excludes people as a business model? That's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I love how you said that. Yeah. And I and I I actually sometimes feel because those those industries are populated with lots of queer people mm. who, by the way, will be listening. And I'm sorry, and please write in and have a go at me. <laughs> um, but you know, it's like I think that sometimes if you, you know, that lovely saying. Have you ever heard it? Desire is the loss contained within it. You go to try and be in those spaces because you were so not in them originally. That's and true. I think that that's why maybe some of lots of those people end up in those places. And it's no criticism. No. Well, maybe it is. No, I think you're right. And you spoke about trying to rewrite your youth in a way. And and actually being in fashion suddenly makes a kid like me that was very uncool as a teenager, suddenly someone who gets to decide what's cool. And there's a, there's a, for the first couple of years of your 20s, that was quite heady. That was quite exciting. But ultimately, it's empty. It, it was empty for mm. me. Yes. And thank God from all of us that you did, thank you. you know, t- t- have the the gumption and self-belief to go, hang on, this doesn't work for me. What am I going to do? And write these books and do things that felt truer to you because it's very hard. It's very it's very hard to know that that's going to work out, right? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think a, life is a, a journey. It sounds like such a cliche. It sounds like something you could put on a kitchen wall. But you also mm. might not know who you're going to be at 18, 19, 20. And so you have to be, we're all, we're all only coming around once. We will live this mm. life once, I believe. And so mm. you have to just be open to the evolution of who you want to be. And, and funnily enough, I was at the height of my fashion career when I sat down to write Shuggy Bane. Because when I was the most successful, I was also the most unfulfilled. And and the reason why I didn't tell my friends I was writing, my friends in fashion, that I was writing a novel is because I think they would just have looked at me like I was mad. Um, like, what what are you doing? And like, what is this? In fact, when I did eventually have to come out, I had to come out at 43 and say to my fashion friends, I'm leaving fashion and I'm going to follow my literary dreams before Shuggy was even published. They all took me for dinner. We had almost like a goodbye dinner from my job. And... Uh, nobody asked me what the book was about and every single one of them asked me do I get to design the cover and I reminded them of this recently and I was like so you know I just kept it to myself what was the point in telling you wow I love that was and do you think that was because they were nervous about going oh I don't think that sounds great and you've just jacked in your career or do you think they just weren't interested yeah I don't think we had so many conversations about literature um I think that's that's it and that's fine books don't have to be for everybody everybody and but it was it just it didn't interest them it was funny that you said um about your was it your sister who when you said I've won the booker yeah what did she say? <laughs> my, when I won the booker, I called my sister and she said, I said, sis, sis, I've won the booker. And she went, oh, that's really good. And then in a in a beat, she went, do you know, I tried to return up top to Primark today and I forgot the receipt. And I just thought, this is brilliant. This is so, so perfect because it keeps you grounded and it keeps you humble. Yes. And that's totally fair. Yes. And actually, I told a journalist this and they put it in the paper recently. And my big sister phoned me and she went, I can't believe you told everybody that. And I said, I'm so sorry, but you did say that. And she said, no, don't be telling people I shop at Primark. And I was like, okay, great, great, right. Okay, right. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. Prime, Primani, sorry. Uh, um, 
So, you know, there's this saying that, like, no matter how successful you become, if you're not happy, you're never going to be happy as a result of the success. His, uh, to save lots of people lots of time who want to write a Booker Prize winning novel, has it made you happier winning? Because you did, you did the top of your game in fashion and you weren't satisfied, but doing the top of your game in books, has it made you happy? Does it change you? Oh God, I didn't know we were coming in for therapy today, but yes, yes, it has. <laughs> it has. It's made me, it's, it's been, it's been an adjustment because it happened so quickly and so strangely, but it's made, yeah. I feel the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I feel aligned with my purpose and I feel empowered to do the thing that I always wanted to do, which was just connect with people. You know, that's the thing that mm-hmm. unifies design and literature is the desire to connect with people you've not met yet and to inspire them and to, and to take them on a journey. And, and so I'm so, I'm very, very happy and I feel very lucky. Yeah. And that as maybe that's the two component thing that you need. It's yeah, you can be successful imagining if someone wants that in their life, maybe they don't. Um, but it's also aligning with your purpose, like you say. I love that. That's when you can, you'll feel rewarded and truly nourished by your, if you are lucky enough to be able to do work like that, that's when you can be nourished. That's right. And, and I mean, the book is, uh, other than the Booker Prize, the book has brought me a lot of personal peace because it allowed me to express things that I've never expressed as a young man. Mm. I think all men, and certainly men from the working class west coast of Scotland, are expected to just hold their trauma or their pain or their vulnerability in silence. We're meant to just kind of swallow it and continue on and not examine it and not express it. And, you know, that's that's coming from generations of working class men who did really dangerous jobs and to express any kind of vulnerability might unravel all of it you you couldn't go back mm. down you couldn't go back down into a coal mine or climb up the staging to build a ship if you really got in touch with your vulnerability so you know we're mm. all a bit like that and i think that still happens today you see the terrible mental health records for men as it as it stands and and so writing this book was a way for me to to give something away you know to to just untangle something that had been tangled up inside me for ages. Mm. And what? So what's next? You're doing your lap of victory uh, around the country, and then have you written the third book? I can't remember. <laughs> you sound like my agent. Can I just publish this? Se- <laughs> can I just publish this second book? I just love that you'd already written Young Mungo before you got the Booker and all of that, because then it, you are, you were hermetically sealed from going from paranoia maybe yeah. to a certain extent yeah a, li- a little bit a little bit and you know everyone asked me about the di- difficult second album but and i think it'll be my third album that will be a bit difficult mm. but i need to uh you know i've been living very much on the surface of my life i've been very busy recently and you can't write from the surface you've got to go back to the depths and back to some sense of solitude so i'm hoping once i introduce mungo to the world i can i can get back to my desk Brilliant. Oh, well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you in person, but please, Shuggy and Mungo are great options for baby names. So I'd, I'd be happy, <laughs> even for girls. Shungo. Shungo. Would you be happy with Shungo? Muggy. Muggy. <laughs> maybe, maybe less so muggy. <laughs> a joyous, uplifting chat with a wonderful man. I think you shall agree. Next week, you are in for a double episode treat because, people, on Monday, we are doing a Heartstopper special. Why? Because you all love it so much. The creator of Heartstopper, the graphic novel turned Netflix super smash, Alice Oseman, will be joining us for a Culture Club special all about Heartstopper. And then on Thursday, I'm chatting to Instagram sensation Raven Smith, who's the funniest man on Instagram. He's written a book. It's called Raven Smith Men. It's brilliant. So he's going to come by for a chat about all the memes he does and talk about working at Vogue 
Vogue and all the incredible things he's done. He's really funny and really honest. And we have such an interesting, interesting conversation about the queer experience. I just loved that chat. So make sure you tune in for both of those. One's Monday, one's Thursday. Uh, hello at homosapienspodcast.com is my email address, my email. At homosapiens on Instagram is the place to be. Review us on Apple Podcasts. We you could win a t-shirt and keep the agony uncles coming to hello at homosapienspodcast.com and it will always be anonymous. That's it. I need to go and do some washing up. Have a lovely week. Thank you so much for listening. Loads of love. Bye-bye. 